All right, thanks, Tracy. As she said, go ahead and invite uh, you to turn to Ephesians 6 in the scriptures as we continue to look at what it means to have a spirit-filled life. We have defined a spirit-filled life to be a life that's fully and continually submitted to his word. It always starts with what we're going to do with the scriptures. Are we simply going to consider what it has to say, or are we going to choose to live under what the Word of God says? So I cannot live a Spirit-filled life if I'm living in disobedience to the Word. So I'm submitted to the Word, and when I'm submitted to the Word, then all that He is in me, because He has poured His Spirit into my heart, all that He is in me, as He has poured Himself into me, then will flow through me. See, the fact that God has poured his spirit into my heart is what he has done for all of his children. That's a promise. The command is to be being filled so that the life of Jesus in me flows fully and continually through me. We've looked at that as how we function as a body, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to encourage one another, that who God is is flowing through us. We've looked at that, what it means in marriage, how in marriage, a husband and wife, spirit-filled, demonstrate who God is. And last week, Jonathan Monk looked at what it means to be a spirit-filled child. And I hope you captured. It's not just the dependent child, it's the independent child, and then it's the independent child with dependent parents. It's the whole process of as long as I have that privilege of living in relationship with parents that I can live a spirit-filled life. So today, we look at Ephesians 6, 4, and we look at spirit-filled parenting. I feel a little bit of weight of this this morning for this reason. The first thing that God said to humanity was this. God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Uh, so there is rarely a greater responsibility and privilege than to be a multiplier. To be a person through whom which God uses to shape another life. So if you're a mom, a dad, or a grandpa, a grandma, aunt, an uncle, you may feel that. But I want to answer before we get into this text, what about the person who never has children? Do they have the privilege to be fruitful and multiply? 100%. See, uh, I'm not only... My mom and dad's child. I am uh, from my years at Columbia, what many would have referred to as one of Mary Faith's boys as well. Because Mary Faith Phillips was the professor who led the Bible teaching program at Columbia when I was a student there. And she was never married, never had children, but she has sons and daughters all across the planet who she invested in as parents invest in their kids, she invested in for the sake of equipping them to be able to handle the scriptures. She was a disciple maker. So I'm inviting really every single one of you to ask yourself, how am I fulfilling God's first words to humanity to be fruitful and multiply. Some of us will feel it very profoundly because we're right now in the middle of being mom and dad to some, to some dependent children, and we feel that responsibility. Or others of us are at that stage of like, no, we're just grandpa and grandma, and so our grandkids are like toys. We get to play with them as long as we enjoy them and then send them home. Uh, we, we can play with him, but like all weekend, it was like, oh, this is awesome. Hey, he has a dirty diaper. That's not my child when the, dirty, when the diaper's dirty anymore. That used to be true, not mine anymore. That, that's, so you might be at a different stage, but wherever you are, 
the privilege that we all have is to be fruitful and multiply. And so this text, though it says specifically fathers, I want you to think bigger than just what you might think normally of as earthly father. I want you to think of as a multiplier, a disciple maker, because we have no greater privilege than to be that primary instrument that God uses in someone else's life for them to learn to walk with the Lord. So what's it teach us about spirit-filled parenting? In other words, spirit-filled, how do I live a life under the word of God such that the life of God in me overflows from me, through me, onto my kids, earthly kids, spiritual kids, my life, his life in me, overflowing into them. That's what we're talking about. Fathers, here's our passage. Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the first question that I have when I read that text is, but what about mom? <laughs> because I, I don't know if you've realized that or not, but in our culture, when it comes to child rearing, we tend to think of moms even before we think of dads. And yet, I would encourage you to scour your Bible and look for all the verses in the New Testament that talk about mom's responsibility for raising kids. And you know what you'll find? You'll find no verses that say anything to moms in the New Testament. Isn't that weird? You don't look like it seems that weird to you, but that's kind of weird. That's very unusual. So what about moms? Why does it say dads? When very few of you may say it, but historically, what have people talked about it? Raising kids, that's, that's a mom's job. It's not what the Bible says, actually. Fathers, it says and addresses. So what about mom? Well, first, I think fathers indicates the accountability of leadership in the home. In the same way that Jesus said, as I am head of the church, I want the husband to be the head of the marriage, to lead his wife as I lead him. That extension of leadership and headship in the home of the husband extends to the father. So it, it's an indication of accountability of leadership. Second, fathers could be and actually is translated parents elsewhere in the New Testament. In other words, this Greek word here that gets translated in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, and in Hebrews eleven twenty three, in reference to Moses as a little baby, it says, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Interestingly, if you've watched anything on a movie recreation or a Bible story book about Moses, who was always hiding the baby? Isn't that funny? Mom was always hiding the baby, but that word actually is translated parents here, but everywhere else in the New Testament, it's translated fathers. But it's indicating there is a joint responsibility here, parents. Third, uh, fathers does not imply this is not applicable to moms. <laughs> in other words, I don't think any of you would take this, but... But you go, oh, so I don't actually have any responsibility with this text since I'm a mom, not a dad. When it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, it's not saying, dads, you don't do that. Moms, that's your responsibility. You get them good and angry. And some of you are going, yeah, I've fulfilled my role perfectly then. It's not fathers. Don't do this, moms, you can. And it's not fathers bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and moms, you don't have any role there. I don't think you would think that. But we at least need to acknowledge, it says dads, do this. There's 
responsibility of leadership. But there is a joint role here, and it's not complicated. If anything, I hope what you'll walk out today with is sometimes we overcomplicate parenting. There's been like a jillion books written on it. And the New Testament, there's going to be one other verse, we'll look at it. The New Testament is exceedingly simple and clear. It says this, beware of a fleshly tendency. Moms and dads, beware of something. And fulfill a spiritual responsibility. That's all parenting is about. Beware of a fleshly tendency to do what? Provoke your kids to anger. And by the way, are we talking only five-year-olds now? Or can 55-year-olds provoke their 25-year-olds to anger? And can 75-year-olds provoke their 55-year-olds to anger? Sure. This is not just, again, thinking if you have in your mind, well, I'm past this stage. No, we're never past the stage of provoking our kids to anger. I could provoke, my kids are now 21, 22 to 31. I could provoke them still to anger. So it's a beware of a fleshly tendency. Moms and dads, can moms equally provoke their kids to anger? Yes or no? Okay. Yes, moms and dads can equally do this. Beware. And fulfill a spiritual responsibility, which is what? Bring them up in discipline and instruction. It's not the same. So, hey, don't do this, but do this and this. That's the text. And that's really the sum of the New Testament in parenting. First, a spirit-filled stop. Stop provoking to anger. And I say this is a fleshly tendency because the only other directly New Testament passage toward parenting says in Colossians 3.21, fathers again, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Don't raise your kids in such a way as if they are going to throw up their hands and go, I quit. I can't win. So that's what you and I need to be aware of. Whether it's our biological children or whether it's somebody we're discipling that we don't Follow a fleshly tendency, because the opposite of spirit-filled is fleshly. A fleshly tendency that will provoke to anger, exasperate. Don't take it too far. All anger in children is not because parents have sinfully provoked it. (laughs) In other words, you might look at this text and think, oh man, my kids are angry. What I do wrong? Are they always angry because you did something wrong? Is it always your fault? Yes or no? No. Is it sometimes your fault? (laughs) How do I know? Well, if my child, whatever age they are, uh, are angry, it may be because I blocked one of their fleshly desires. I said no to something that their flesh was saying yes to. And so they're angry. Or how many four-year-olds or five-year-olds have you seen test their parents' resolve with their anger? If I embarrass them enough, if I pitch a big enough fit, if I fall down on the ground and flail in the grocery store, I'm sure that I can break their resolve. Now, a kid you think is never that smart. They are. They may not be able to write that out or verbalize that, but that's exactly what they're doing. They're going, I can prevail here. So let's not think that if a child is angry, whether they're 5, 25, or 55, it's because the parent did something wrong. That's not always the case. I have fleshly desires I need to guard against, and so do my kids. 
right? So the question is not, are they angry? The question is, whose flesh is getting revealed here? Whose flesh is getting exposed here? Is it mine and I provoked it? Or is it theirs? Because they will not be denied their desires. So I want to give us, because it speaks from the parenting side, simply the dirty dozen of provoking to anger. These are the sins of parents. And can I just acknowledge for you, I did not have to read a book to discover these. All I had to do was go look in the mirror and go, Doug, what did you do? How was the flesh revealed in your life? And how is the flesh revealed in your life that then provokes to anger? I didn't have to look at a list somewhere. I could just see it myself. So all I'm going to ask you to do is do what I did. As we go through this list, and we won't spend a long time, you'll either see it or you go, hmm, thank you, Lord. That one's not really a part of my life. You'll see it, all right? Just look in your own mirror and go, how am I prone in my own flesh to provoke, to anger, to exasperate? First, all through the scripture is the sin of favoritism. Favoritism exasperates, provokes to anger. If you have a favorite, you should repent of that. No place for favoritism. Or it may be hypocrisy. For some reason, it became kind of acceptable for parents to say, do as I say, not as I do. Who made that a popular parenting proverb? That's provoked to anger. Does it not make you boil when you see a policeman speeding down the highway when you know they have nowhere to go that's an emergency? Does that not make you mad? I'm driving down San Jose to do a Bible study of all things. And I'm heading downtown and I see a policeman and I think, he's, he's not going anywhere. I think I can go as fast as he can go. So we got to the red light in front of Bulls. And he rolled down his window. So I rolled down my window. And he said, you need to slow it down. And I said, you're right. <laughs> no, was I going to go, you need to slow. I was just keeping up with you, dude. That's what I thought. But what I said was, thank you for the warning. <laughs> but what I thought was, that's not cool. You weren't going anywhere. Why can't I just drive as fast as you can? But when I live that way as a parent, and then I say to my kids, hey, do what I say, not as I do, that provokes. Don't be that guy. Comparison, it's a little different than favoritism. I certainly have caught coming out of my mouth. Yeah, but, but, and name somebody. And as soon as it's out, you're like, Oh, that is just so wrong, Duck. But it's out. Overprotection. The goal of parenting is to move our kids from what? Dependence to independence. And we'll never move them there where there is overprotection. And I realize. As soon as I put that up, there's going to be disagreements about what is being overly protective. Jackie and I had, as you may call them, many discussions about such things as our kids were growing up. What I was thought was overprotective, what she thought was overly permissive. So where's the line? Well, for me, it was what I thought. <laughs> And for her, it was what she thought. So what's, what really is? Well, overprotection 
I think is when I go, I'm trying to play a role that only God can play. I never really appreciate it, and I still don't in this COVID, used to call it a season. Now it's like, what are we headed to, a decade? Um, our highest priority is making sure you're safe. That's, that's baloney. Do I have the capacity to make sure you are safe? No. Do I have the capacity to make sure my kids are safe? No, I don't have that. That is me attempting to do something that is outside my lane. That's bigger than what I have capacity to do. I can. Responsible people get hurt, killed all the time. What's my res- foolishness is in a child. So what's my role as a parent? To protect from foolishness. To teach responsibility. But when I move beyond that, from protecting from foolishness and establishing responsibility then I think I'm getting into the area of I'm trying to play a role that only God can play. Now, we do Q&A afterwards, and so there'll probably be some Q&A about how that works out. That's the general principle of overprotection. And you get, you get the fact, don't you? When there's overprotection, then there's the hovering, there's the, the constant, no, 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 this, that there's no room for a child who is to grow into an adult, biologic, biologically or spiritually. There's no room for them to blossom. There's no room for them to grow and to learn. And sometimes, well, for most of us, the lessons we remember the longest and the most are the lessons that were the hardest. And if we're trying to protect always from hard, we're not only going to fail, we're probably not doing our kids any favors. Absence. Presence cannot be overstated in the parenting process. You know it. More is caught than taught, and you only catch it with presence. You cannot overstate presence. Accent, uh, quality time. Something I've tried to remember. Quality time is the accident that happens when you spend quantity time together. But you try to plan a quality moment and you'll be so frustrated because it will never be as good as you anticipated it. And so this quality moment becomes this angry moment because expectation wasn't met. And then you have this very mundane presence and God gives a unbelievable quality moment. Absence. Absence is just so painful for the child, whatever the age. I've shared with you pretty honestly about my parents were divorced when I was 10. My dad lived in the same city. There was no guardian, there was no parental sharing, that sort of thing. Nothing worked out legally. So I was with him at times, but I didn't grow up with my dad from after 10. But I still felt his absence when he died when I was in my 50s. It's the way God made the relationship. Because there'd still be those times where I'd jump in and 
driving to work, and there was times where these would be the moments where I would always call dad, and it was like, ah, can't call him anymore. And I learned my lesson. Sure, I'm 57 now, my mom's 83, and I'd be sure to call her at least once a week. And it rarely finishes other than, Doug, thank you so much for calling, and I can hear the tears through the phone. His presence means something. God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. Presence is powerful. Absence provokes the anger. And absence is more than, presence is more than simply being there physically. Right? You can be there in body, but your mind and your heart, your attention and your affections not be anywhere close to in the room. So let's not only be there, let's be there when we're there. I've had lots of my own moments of regret where I think I was in the room, but I wasn't in the room. We were there, but I didn't really engage. And so it's a loss. Abuse. All of us understand the horrible nature of using authority and force and size in ungodly ways and what that does to a person as then they grow up. Uh, Unrealistic expectation. They have to be the best. They have to be first. They have to be smartest. Unrealistic expectation. If the bar is always too high, everybody stops jumping. Demeaning words. I don't know who started the sticks and stones statement, but it's not correct. You, you heard it growing up? Okay. I didn't think that was just a Lancaster County thing. Sticks and stones will, may break your bones, but yeah. <laughs> That's a, what, a stup- what a stupid statement. We should just call it what it is. That's a stupid statement. <laughs> Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will cut me to the core. So, moms and dads, Words that come out of our mouth. So crucial. And what happens to the heart of our kids? On the other side, the lack of encouragement. (laughs) I can only laugh here because... And you know I'm prone to cry, but this wouldn't be a, an emotional cry. This would be a frustrated cry if I, if I don't laugh. I don't blame my dad for this. This is the way he was raised. But I couldn't believe it when it came out of his mouth when he said to me, Doug, it's not my responsibility to affirm when you do right. You're supposed to do that. It's my responsibility to correct you when you do wrong. I was like, who thinks that? And then I looked at my life and I went, hmm. I can be prone that way. Where affirmation is absent and correction is much, much more present. And I know better. Don't you know? You know better. I know better. But sometimes the knowing better doesn't always translate to to the words. I I learned really early. (laughs) With my oldest son, 
that when I was trying to brush his teeth before he could brush them his own, that, you know, they, they don't really like it, so they don't open their al- mouth very wide, so you're like breaking teeth as you brush teeth, you know what I'm talking about, just, just, come on, and then you can go, come on, open wider, and, it's like, and nothing happens, but I learned that if I'd say, Clayton, you can open your mouth so wide, you go, well, that's stupid child psychology, correct, and it works phenomenally, <laughs> you can open your mouth so wide. Really, and then, and the more I was amazed at how wide he could open them, it was just lots wider. Where when it was, you don't just do it, it was, didn't motivate. So if I can figure that out at that age, I ought to be able to figure out as they grow older and older. The power of demeaning words to destroy and the power of encouraging words to breathe life and oxygen. And a lack of encouragement can provoke to anger. Inconsistent discipline. Obviously, the absence of discipline can provoke to anger. Maybe inconsistent discipline can be even more provoking. Do you hear what I just said? Inconsistent may be more painful than absence. At least absence is predictable. (laughs) Inconsistent discipline. In other words, where you're in trouble based on my mood, not your behavior. That's... That's like daily Russian roulette. I never know if the gun is loaded. I can learn to live with an unloaded gun or a loaded gun, but I, how do you learn to live with a gun that's sometimes loaded and sometimes isn't? You understand what I'm saying? I'm not talking about shooting your kids. It's that sense of, man, you just, it's so unpredictable. Unwillingness to listen. To hear what is thought, quick to interrupt, and then finally an unwillingness to apologize. I think all parents, or the vast majority of parents, Expect their kids, teach their kids, require their kids to apologize. But so seldom apologize. But it's one of the first things we teach our kids. Remember a staff member saying he went home one day, pulled in the driveway, his son was out shooting basketball. He goes, says to him, hey, what do you say, Nate? Sorry? That seems like the correct answer to that question. What do you say? Sorry? Drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it, drill it. As parents, and then so seldom practice. What were you drill? So, again, you don't need to read a book. Probably didn't even need me to explain it much. I didn't explain it in principle. It's just sharing from my own mirror. And I see it in my own life. When I see there's a, watch, there's a perfect heavenly father who's pouring into me that I want to, Lord willing, to flow out of me. And when I do that, that's not my father. So I want to beware. And then I want to fulfill my spiritual responsibility. Guard my flesh. Beware of my flesh. And then I want to fulfill that it's my responsibility for instruction. And when I say mine, I'm including Jackie and me. We're one. <laughs> if you missed this marriage one, it's oneness. It's our responsibility 
for instruction and discipline. To provide instruction. And this helps me, maybe it won't help you, helps me to think, what am I, what am I teaching them? And, and manners are fine, but they're not at the top of my list. I want to teach them what's true. I want to teach them what's right. I want to teach them what's good. Now let me say, and I'm acknowledge, I'm going to say the same thing, but from the other side, because maybe this will help you. I want to provide instruction. We want to provide. Here's what's true. Here's what's right. Here's what's good. So that you are able to identify and avoid the lies, the wrong, and the harm. You see, the, I realize it's the, it's the same thing, and I debated. Do I make you write it down twice? Do I show it to you twice? Here's why. Sometimes we're best at our parenting when we understand what's the end product we are seeking to train and to instruct for. And I am seeking, whether it's biological children or spiritual children, and hopefully they'll be both, I want them to be able to identify a lie. Because our enemy is, first and foremost, a, a liar. And what's he wanted to do? He wants to kill and destroy with his lies. So the goal in helping them understand what is true in a world where there's a lot that's not true so that they'll understand lies. And I want to teach them what's right because that way they can identify wrong. Please don't be the parent who says, well, I think it's just best for me to let my kids figure it out for themselves. Everybody should figure it out for themselves. That's kind of popular these days. I just let them go and let them figure it out for themselves. That's not the way God designed it to be. God designed it to be that you, as he has demonstrated and taught you what is true and what is right, that you would be that in human flesh for the children, spiritually or biologically, God has given you. It's not for them to figure it out for themselves. They have to make it their own or not make it their own, but it's our role and responsibility to instruct. Here's what's true. No, that's not true. That's a lie. Here's what's right. No, I know our culture says that's right. That's not right. That's wrong. Silence will lead to confusion. Confusion provoke your kids to anger. Why can't I have parents who would help me know what's right? What's good and what brings harm? Where's the church fit into this? God intends the church, as I'm seeking to do on a weekly basis, as we seek to do in family groups and our adult classes, God intends the church to equip parents who are accountable. I hope If God has given you children, or if he gives you spiritual children, you'll connect them with the church. But it's not the church's responsibility to raise your kids. How many hours a week? 168 hours in a week. You'll get about 166 as parents, and the church will get two. Somehow there's this thought, well, the church is responsible. Now, our primary responsibility is to equip you to fulfill your God-given role of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth with the glory of God with, as God, by his grace, allows children to live according to what they were instructed in terms of what is true, right, and good. Discipline, provide discipline that corrects past wrong behavior, right? You've said, here's what's right, and they didn't do it. We discipline. 
to correct past wrong behavior and to train future right behavior. I'm not just, I don't want to, as a parent, simply address what was wrong. I want to address what was wrong by the discipline. And I want to then train in that same way, same time, and that same activity of what's right for the future. Just don't look past. Look future in the discipline. A couple questions. Did it hurt? Should discipline hurt? This is one of the things that we need to identify as right in a culture that's calling it wrong. Should discipline be abusive? Of course not. But discipline by its very nature hurts. When it comes to physical exercise, we're all quick to say no pain, no no gain. If we're in a discipline, we simply have to ask, did it hurt? And it doesn't always have to hurt physically. (laughs) It might hurt in, I don't get to play with it. I don't get to have what I had. Uh, There's more than one way to hurt, yes? I'm not angry and therefore I'm making it hurt. I'm correcting wrong and training for future rights. But there is no reason to change unless it hurts. So did it hurt? And did I do it in love? Was I just mad? See, if our discipline comes from we're angry, we're inconvenienced, we're embarrassed, if that's where the discipline comes from, it's not going to serve our kids. So we do it in love. But it hurts. For our spanking, and yes, we did spank. We used a wooden spoon. In fact, our second daughter said, we were at somebody's house, Dad, why are they using the spanking spoon for cooking? <laughs> I had no, she had no idea it was like a cooking utensil. You could choose to do it differently. We used a spoon, not our hand. Why? Some people say, well, you don't want the hand to be connected to you. That was not my deal. My deal was my hand was always with me. And if I spanked with my hand, there was much more an opportunity to do it in anger. But I have to, if I have to go find the spoon and then have a conversation... In the conversation, I, I, don't, I don't know. I'm, I've invited my two oldest boys to be part of Q&A because it's, it's one thing to go, oh, man, Doug, you sound so wise. You have all these principles. They bring real life. Yeah, man, here, here's the reality behind the speech. So that's why they'll be part of Q&A. So if you want to hear the reality, you can be, pick up the Q&A. So I don't even know if they would say this. What I in their memory. What I tried to demonstrate was where there was discipline needed, the little speech that went like this. Son, daughter, I I tried to teach you with my words and by my example. But since they haven't worked, now we're going to use the spoon. Not the absence of the other, But the spoon was simply an opportunity to make sure it wasn't in anger. The conversation, so that it wasn't in anger. It was training. Did it hurt? Yeah, it needs to hurt. If it didn't hurt, there's no reason to change. So I do it in love. If I discipline, in a manner that's not loving, if I do it in anger, I do it for selfish reasons. I do it for appearances. That will provoke to anger. 
Effective instruction. This is putting it together. Effective instruction and discipline, I think, requires... Again, I don't think this is very complicated. It requires words. Has God instructed us with words? Yes. You see, if you haven't been tracking, what I hope you'll track with is simply this. What's my heavenly father do? Teaches me what is true, right, and good. How? With words. He has revealed himself. So it requires words. Sometimes I don't give enough words. Sometimes I give too many words. Well, once you've said it eight times, you've probably overset it. Eight times is not necessarily more effective than two times. It may be less effective. So it starts with words. Ask yourself, those whom God has placed in your life that you are multiplying, have you spoken sufficient words about what is true, right, and good? Are you just assuming they should figure it out? And what did he, God do? He took on human flesh. He gave us an example. Now, Jesus is more than an example. Don't misunderstand. Jesus is more than an example. He's the substitutionary sacrifice to pay the penalty for my sin. He is my savior. But he's also my example of what it means to live as God intended man to really live in human flesh. He is righteousness lived out. And can you give me your eyes for just a second? You are, when the Spirit of God dwells in you, you are the body of Christ to be the example. God said it, and then God did it. That's parenting. We give words, we give an example. And we do it with consistency. We have a father, what it says what? With whom there is no shifting shadow. Our God never changes. It's immutable. So we have in him And don't underplay this. We have in him a perfect example. So I want to invite Matt and Shirley to come up. And and we want to turn our attention to our Father. And as we sing this, it's not only our praise to him. It's not only our expression of gratitude to him for who he is and how he has loved us. Would it be also our, Lord, would I be? To those that you have given me the privilege of multiplying. Would I be in word an example and inconsistency who you've been to me. And here's the beauty of a spirit-filled life. What? He's not calling us to be and to do something he isn't. He is saying, all that I want you to be, mom and dad, it's who I am. And it's who I am in you. So that my life, my love, would flow through us and multiply others to the praise of his glory. We usually sit when we pray. Let's stand and let's pray this. Gratitude to the Lord.
of who you are, your goodness, and the knowledge that you live in us, that we would be an example of what who Jesus is, because you are living through us. Lord, we need your help to do it. We ask that you would bless us in every conversation, every opportunity, every circumstance, the rest of today, and moving forward. Lord, we trust you. We thank you for being a good, good father to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's have a blessed day. Thanks for being here.